This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's O Ship. I've got a really, really interesting guest on today called Braden Olson. Braden describes himself as an inventor striving to make a difference. He is the co-founder of Almost Inside, a technology firm that is designed to understand human capability while removing a lot of the traditional biases that we see, whether they're personality-driven or, frankly, even socioeconomic. He's a former product manager at Deloitte's Enduring Human Capability of Excellence. He's the former CEO of Recurrence, a startup focused on experiential education. Their work's actually supported thousands of students across over 50 universities. He's the former CEO of Novell, one of the earliest companies in the emerging gamification space that use games to assess people through simulations. Needless to say, this guy understands human behavior through gamification, and I think it's pretty easy to say that's something he's passionate about. He's also the author of Twilight of the Idols, an American story that addresses the decline of the American dream as income inequality becomes more prevalent in America. So to say he's also very passionate about addressing challenges that will improve our world is something I think we can say safely. So today's episode asks, how can games improve the real world? And I think we've got exactly the right guest to answer that question. And so here we go with another week of O-Ship. Braden, welcome to our ship. How are you? So great to be here. I'm doing great. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing excellent. I'm thoroughly looking forward to geeking out with you. You've got some of my favorite subjects wrapped up into one. I feel yeah, quite the same. Uh, yeah, so the, the funny thing is I've noted on our ship a couple of times over the years, I'm a lifelong gamer, starting on the Atari to you know, playing first-person shooters these days. But I think today it's a different way of thinking about gamification while some people have heard the term, I think really digging into it's going to be super interesting. But before we dig into that, I wanted to start a little bit from the beginning. You position yourself as an inventor, but I also happen to think of you as an entrepreneur. So are you an entrepreneur or an inventor? Which way do you feel like you kind of lean more these days and why? Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly think it's possible to be both. When I think about it myself, you know, I've put myself in the unusually precarious situation of always making my life very, very hard. Um, and I had a business partner tell me once, why do you keep picking these three things which make starting a business very hard? You want to do something that no one's ever done before, that's socially redeemable, and then that also makes money, right? <laughs> and I guess that's why I've stuck with the inventor handle because I really get passionate about spaces where it's not just starting a company, but it's doing something that there's not really a path for that maybe you're going to have to create patents and new ideas and algorithms just to do. And so I guess that's why I think of myself as a bit of both. I think that's super fair. I mean, a lot of people out there, look, they're just saying, look, I'm in the business of making money and I can take something else someone's done. They're not precious about it. And they just want to take the idea and they want to make a money-making machine. And I think when you go out there and you've got bigger goals than that, some of them, I think you're trying to change the world in a positive way is, I think is something more and more businesses strive to. But yeah, adding in that third layer of like, 
and no one's ever going to have done it before. And it <laughs> is, uh, make, makes it slightly more complicated. Of all the things that you've created over the years, what's you know, maybe one example of something that you're probably most proud of? Well, I mean, the work that we're doing now at Almost Insight, it's Genesis first came out of kind of building a new method of human measurement that I was very fortunate to get funding from the National Science Foundation to support. What does human measurement mean? I want to make sure like that's clear to everyone. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we can't go that technical. The whole genesis of this, there's basically been four generations of the evolution of human capability measurement. So imagine way back in the day when before really any notions of anything, it was just how smart are you, right? Your future in life, the performance that you are capable of achieving, it's obviously just how smart you are, right? Yeah. So there was this break with that idea. And in that break, you had things like the Kersey, uh, MBTI, DISC, where they basically said, hey, there's something other than just raw cognitive intelligence that seems to really matter here as to performance, what people achieve in life. And that was kind of the first genesis. Now, that said, some of those first methods weren't actually valid, but they were a good start in the direction of thinking. We kind of evolved that in a second generation where it was the big five personality type, Hogan, where things have been validated, but they are stepping on the shoulders of that notion. Mm -hmm. And so we went from, hey, there's a different way to think about you know, what people are capable of to now we have valid measurements and valid theses about what that looks like. And then we kind of moved it into the digital environment was generation three, which we need because you need that to do it at scale and do it you know, mm -hmm. repeatably. But we tried to just translate stuff that was like done in person to a digital format. And that again, kind of limited the validity. There were lots of problems technical that we could get into. And so now we're in this fourth generation where like, we understand all that, but we are building technology that's digitally native. So we approach it with the end in mind. We build the model to be mm -hmm. digital. We validate the method in the digital format. Everything is done in a way that is demonstrated performance, done in a digitally native environment that's contextual, that's relevant to what's being mm -hmm. measured. It's just a lot more reliable and then also can reduce these biases, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. I definitely want to get into this concept of how you apply gamification to that. But before we dig into that, I want to do two things. First off, I think it'd be useful if you explain to people, what is the concept more broadly of gamification for anyone that is not familiar with the term that might be listening or watching those ship? And then two, I want to know what made you fall in love with it. Like when, when did this become a thing that you were like, I'm going to make like half my career about this? <laughs> well, I'll answer both together, but I'll start with the second one. It's, it's innately human. It is something that just feels better to us and creates a more human-centric world. That's why I love it. Even in my answer, you're seeing kind of how I look at it more broadly. So gamification generally is the notion that, hey, if we add game mechanics or add gaming to a real-world environment, you know, we can do nifty things. We'll get into what nifty things are. Yeah. But it's so much more than that because if you go back to human history, you know, mm -hmm. since, since we picked up sticks and stones, we've been playing games to learn, to understand ourselves, to mm -hmm. find out where we fit in society, to mm -hmm. engage in our oral traditions. Like mm -hmm. it is so much more innately human than people think. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about gamification, it's not just adding badges and points to something or putting people into role-playing game experiences in an environment mm -hmm. where they might not normally be. It's actually about designing a world that feels more intuitive to humans. Mm -hmm. 
That's really interesting. I think about your concept playing games. You're such an interesting about like using gaming to learn or, or to teach, whether that's just the concept of like practicing through simulations or role playing through something. Those are game ways to learn. How do you use games to understand behavior? Like, how do you inverse that? Like, how do you use that for like more about learning, you know, which is, I think, a big part of what you do at almost. Yeah. And learning and measurement are only a couple of aspects of what you can yeah. do. So let's dig into that later. So really, I think the genesis of this thinking was an observation, you know, 20 years ago that I reviewed. And I think the guy's name was Dr. Richard Bartle. And he was observing the play styles of players who engage in massively multiplayer online games and was able to build them into these quadrants and say, well, you've got your socializers, achievers, explorers, and killers, something like that. <laughs> and the genesis of the idea was if you put people into experiences, they navigate themselves into different directions. And those directions tell us something about who they are, something about what they prefer, what they enjoy, you know, whatever. And obviously in that broad of a context, that's not necessarily useful data to business, but the mm. idea kind of sparked something in me. What we do more literally is when that is done in a business context, when it is done, you know, in what we call the digital work sample, the types of preferences that people are demonstrating, the types of things that they're telling us about themselves relate directly to the work that it is that they do. Mm -hmm. So it's a one-to-one -one comparison, not inferred. It's in a business context. It's demonstrated mm -hmm. performance, but it is still a similar notion of people disclose aspects of themselves as they engage in play. And actually mm -hmm. there's a quote that is attributed to Plato, but isn't actually Plato that I don't know who the actual person is. We just know that it's like not Plato anymore or something, mm -hmm. but it's very famous nonetheless, which is I can learn more about someone in an hour of games than in a year of conversation. And mm -hmm. it's very much that notion that people kind of take the mask off. This is a common mistake on the internet. It's not actually Plato. It's That's what I was saying. Yeah, it's not Plato. The actual, it's the, it's the tool. Oh my it's, God. Yeah, it's a marketing line from that. No, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. It's not Plato. I don't I mean, want to, I don't want to me on right that. <laughs> and I think it's true. I've got stories in my family, but uh, I won't say who it wasn't me though. And I won't say who it was too, but someone was losing a game of Monopoly and they flipped the board and threw their sibling out a window. <laughs> So oh, you, you learn a lot about people through how they express themselves in games. So one of the things that is so interesting, and you know, as I've been researching what you do and preparing for today's show, it's like there's these ways that people have tried to understand other humans from the personality tests that people have done historically out there that when you're doing a, like a multiple choice, first off, I feel like people can game these questions. It gives you a second to think about it to think about what do I think is the answer people want to hear. But I feel like there's something about like when you're in a game that's more fast moving and things aren't as explicit that, like you said, it's like the, the classic, like actions speak louder than words kind of thinking. Let's jump into it. Tell me specifically how you and your most recent company, Almost Inside, is trying to address this. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that key issue. And there's so many, but that key issue that you just brought up to put it in pretty simple terms, the issue tends to be around social desirability. So if you give someone three options, go up, shake my boss's hand, punch him in the face, you know, 
tell them I'm quitting, right? It's pretty easy to see how you should behave or what the employer is trying to look for there. And I think we're all kind of inundated with examples of that. Sometimes you will engage with things that don't take the science seriously or don't validate it. And so when I talk about that social desirability piece, for example, with our products, we test that every single choice is something that is socially desirable that people want to do. And what that means is, you know, and we've tested it with nationally representative samples, people who are high on extroversion and high on agreeableness typically can game tests in the way that you're talking about, just like they can game interviews, right? Come on and look really great, but ultimately don't perform very well in the job or don't actually fit with the culture. So we've demonstrated that if you give people all socially desirable options that merely represent different preferences, those people have no advantage in the product, which means that you've done a good job, which means that there is no clearly right answers. And if there are no clearly right answers, then people are forced to go with the answer that feels most authentic to them. I assume none of your simulations have an option for throwing a coworker or something out <laughs> of the window at the end of the game? Uh, no, although man is an Easter egg someday. <laughs> I think you should add that for sure. <laughs> so tell me about how are you basically applying this in the real world and how's the world going to be better from applying these technologies to kind of get to the theme of this week's show? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to imply that that is singular in any way to the type of work I'm doing. So let's start mm. with the broad and, the, and then get mm -hmm. small. I think there's so much incredible untapped potential in making learning more engaging. And in fact, now more than ever, we need it. You know, the generation coming up are completely tied in with their digital devices. And I hear constantly from teachers that if we're not meeting them in that method, we're losing them. Those are the facts that we deal with. We live in a more digital world. We've demonstrated for decades that not only do you learn faster with games, not only do, do you learn more, but you retain more information over time. So just no brainer, right? We've also seen incredible advances in research, like uh, Foldit as an example, whereby gamifying the process of folding proteins, we've advanced cancer research, we've advanced research into a number of real hard medical scientific conditions that without the power of gamers, you know, we wouldn't have. So, I mean, the untapped potential in research is massive. The untapped potential in terms of motivation. There have been examples of people just adding basic gamification layers over sales processes. Mm -hmm. And that helps people emotionally connect with what they're doing and be excited about it rather than some of the difficulties that are associated with that job, you know, getting on and getting rejection after rejection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just almost limitless when you think about it from the perspective of how do I make the world a little bit more natural for humans, more human-centric, more engaging. It should be part of every human-centric design conversation. Mm -hmm. For us specifically, we think our work makes a dent in bias and economic inequality. And by that, I mean, you know, we've gone through the validation studies to say not only can we eliminate all the traditional biases, right? So race, gender, ethnicity, not only can we do that, we can eliminate personality bias, extroverted, agreeable people who do well on interviews, but mm -hmm. you, know, you, you miss your introverts, right? Mm -hmm. We can do that. But we also shown that when you give people the amount of context we give them through the type of gaming we do, so not just gamification, but the type of gaming we do, where it is a digital work sample, role-playing mm -hmm. game, 
that people who have lower levels of education or maybe are coming from a different kind of career background or don't have full-time employment today, mm -hmm. that those people too have no disadvantage in products like ours. So you can really get a measurement that is not only helping reduce those biases, but helping companies increase their diversity, helping companies find talent that their competitors can't find because they're mm -hmm. looking for keyword searches on resumes and mm -hmm. looking for Harvard and Stanford or whatever. Help them actually find their top third, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of what they use today to find their top third, which is tell me what school you went to, which doesn't even tell you if the person's great. It tells you if the person came from enough economic standing to be in a situation to be at one of those universities. And all the time we can increase efficiency, right? Save recruiters time so they can focus on the interviews that matter. And even not in that aspect, even if you're just looking to develop your leaders at your organization, making sure you're developing the right ones because you see the capabilities based on your real organizational data that drive success, that drive sales, that drive output, that drive high scores from their peers. Mm -hmm. And you tie that into what are the capabilities that are leading to that? And then you develop those people. You put them in the situations to let them develop their leadership. It's just such a no-brainer, an idea that time has more than come. I love it. I think about God knows how many thousands, God, maybe I've done more than 10,000 interviews in my career, who knows. But um, when you get a company, especially I think companies that are very culture-driven, and everyone aspires to be culture-driven or claims to be culture-driven, most people I don't think want their talk quite as much as you know, they put out there. But I just think the current systems are flawed, like trying to find a, a better way to do that, to get to these really kind of the right people. I'm just putting my business guy hat on here, not less about the broader social impacts, but I think better businesses are more diverse. It's even just those right personality types. You know, sometimes we see these kind of brilliant people that they're not, you know, leaders. We look for these people with this kind of, you know, leader mindset and speaking from the Canoeing Collective lens for a moment and being able to really kind of identify that, I think is really powerful. I just, I do think the current systems are just way too easy to manipulate. So that, that's really cool. Just to really amplify what you were just saying, you're so right. And every other aspect of business is already data-driven, except for this one. Right. Like this is the most important one. But, you know, if you ask someone about any of their financial metrics or their sales metrics or their operation metrics or their marketing metrics or anything else, they've got solid data to talk about that. Yeah. But how do you know that someone's a fit for your company or how do you know that you're developing the leaders that make the most sense for your organization that will produce outcomes? No data. Yeah. It's the only piece that's missing. So based on that, you've been doing this for a long time now. I think learning about this space, obviously, even before Ole Miss. And again, not to put you on the spot, I don't know if any of this is confidential or not, but is there any like insights or things that you feel like you've learned over the years that kind of surprised you? you like, like patterns, like broader patterns that don't breach any potential confidentiality agreements you've got out there, but you know, that you've kind of thought, well, like, man, that's really fascinating. What you've learned about people or society or... Workplace, I don't know, like any kind of like little meat tidbits you could throw us. <laughs> yeah, well, gosh, there's so much that comes to mind. There was a talk I once gave about resilience, which is an attribute that we very, very much look for. Businesses are talking about all the time. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting about resilience as a trait, and this ties back to the Harvard or not Harvard thing, is that typically people with really high degrees of resilience come from very difficult backgrounds. So the more that you've tolerated in the past, the more resilient you tend to be in the future. 
However, L- literal thick skin you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. However, there is a breaking point for humans. And so there's this interesting psychological concept called metacognition, which is basically you're thinking about how you're thinking. So it's a combination of being in very difficult environments and using metacognition, thinking about how you're thinking, being someone who reflects on how you're thinking, behaving, how to survive it and get past it and grow stronger. And yes, thick skin, as you said, or as Nietzsche said, this is not the Kelly Clarkson quote. She quoted it from Nietzsche, but what does it do that makes you stronger is a very real thing. And so again, going back to the Harvard thing, I think everybody will kind of nod their heads and say, people who have been through really difficult things can be very valuable assets mm-hmm. for a company. But how do you find yeah. them? Because if we're going through keyword searching, yeah. you're not going to find yeah. them that yeah. way. Were there any other, like, you know, I guess, insights or tidbits you've come up with that you noticed that you thought were really interesting? Well, again, you know, another passion area for me is economic inequality. And so this isn't necessarily surprising maybe to me or to you, because I know it's a passion area for you, but probably to a lot of listeners, we tend to group people into these different categories, race, gender, and say, this group of people has this kind of experience and this group of people has that kind of experience. But what we actually tend to find is that rich men or women or people from white backgrounds or African-American backgrounds, the people who are wealthy tend to have more in common than when you break those groups apart and compare a rich man to a, a poor man, as an example. Those rich men and rich women tend to have more in common. Interesting. It's a very important thing to look at. And to think yeah, so it's like the more commonality, it's not about so much about gender, but actually economic status. Yeah. And I don't mean to diminish those things. Those things yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely just in terms of the patterns you're seeing. I mean, the data is the data. And this is just stuff you're seeing in the data that you're looking at. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think we're the only ones, right? But I think it's an important point to consider. And that's why we add economic inequality into the diversity that we talk about as a company. We are just as committed to gender biases, to ethnic biases, as we are to economic ones. So we've talked a lot about the data you're seeing now about other people and what you've learned from the gamification and understanding human beings, so to speak. Sometimes I feel like looking at other people all the time causes you to be more reflective of yourself. So is there anything that you feel like, if you don't mind me getting more personal, you know, things that you've basically learned about yourself through this process, anything that's caused you to be self-reflective by looking at and understanding other people to understand yourself better, that makes sense. Gosh, I mean, isn't that just a constant journey? Without a doubt. So the example I gave about resilience earlier, where I gave that talk about it, I was looking at research that was very interesting, but that was also reflective of personal experiences. There were a lot of really difficult things in my upbringing, and I relate so much to the issue that I do, and I share this in my book, so I, you know, I can share it here, but you know, I didn't really have the money for school. The only way that I got through was because there's a government program here in Washington that helped me take two years of, of university while I was in high school, overloaded all my classes in college so that I graduated with my four-year degree in 18 months. Wow. Uh, you know, Hardcore. Right. Well, working in the school cafeteria. And so when I looked at that research and I was like, oh, that builds a lot of resilience, you know, and here I am living my life 
as an entrepreneur, which is one of the hardest things to do. And then even making it more challenging, adding the inventor and other parts <laughs> that we talked about. That came from somewhere. And I look at that research and I'm like, it probably came from there. It probably came from difficulties in early childhood, adversities to even get through your education and have the kind of life that other people have and that you want to have. And then on the flip side of that, if you can survive it, you can take a lot of sticks and stones. I think if we're going to talk about resilience, I don't think there's a more opportune moment to ask my favorite question of every episode, and that is getting an oh ship story for you. Now, for those of you who tuned into OSHIP many times, you'll know where I'm going with this, but if you're tuning in for the first time today, I love to ask entrepreneurs and leaders and inventors and adventurers and all the other really cool people that we get on OSHIP about a moment in their career or their life where things maybe went a little bit off the rails. And I love to kind of understand how they dealt with those things. Sometimes those can be inspiring stories. Sometimes they're learning moments and sometimes maybe they're just funny things that they survived along the way and just happy they're on the other side unscathed. So with that, I would love to hear, Brayden, you can give me anyone you want, but I'd love to hear your ship story. All right. Well, I can't promise unscathed at the end. <laughs> but, you know, I, I thought about it because as any entrepreneur, there's so many stories you can talk about. I think the one I want to share, I want to share it because it's most generally useful information. If someone is thinking about starting their first company, which is maybe a lot of people who are interested in content like this, I think it's just a very generalized lesson. So as the story goes, I started my first company out of school. I raised a bunch of money for it, launched the company. We were, I mean, years into the company. There were lots of things that worked out, lots of things that didn't work out, but after a couple of years running this business, having raised millions of dollars, there were people on the board, there were numerous executives that I brought in from the game industry because it was a game-based company. We were very focused on games and even like consumer commercial games at that time. So I brought in all these experts, 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 everywhere was an expert. And the company was not going well. There were a lot of things that were not connecting. So as an example, okay, how can we execute this better? Or you know, why are we underestimating or overestimating this? Why is this product kind of failing to launch even though it's done? And I looked up and I thought about the bios of all of the people around me, myself included at that point, and not a single one had been an entrepreneur before. <laughs> not one person in this multi-million dollar financed company with all the seasoned experts around, and that company ultimately failed. And that company ultimately, I think, failed for that reason. Yeah. There wasn't a single person around who'd done it before. And if you're a first-time entrepreneur, my gosh, why limp around like that? Like, oh my gosh, have someone who's done it before, whether they're on your board, whether they're your first hire, whether they're your co-founder, there's just no reason not to. And what I did with that, what I did moving forward is I always brought in a seasoned entrepreneur for everything I did from there. And even in my current company, I have someone more experienced than me as a co-founder, you know, sold five companies. Like, absolutely think about that experience specifically, bring it into your organization or you will make silly mistakes. And that's great advice. When people think about what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, there's this boldness or whatever is you know, insanity, depending on how you want to look at it and willingness to kind of go out there and start a business. But 
there's these other elements that you think about like, yeah, hey, I need to create a product or I need to be an inventor or I need to make a great brand. But there's all these other weird things that like are behind the scenes that you don't always think about, you know, whether that's an understanding how to be scrappy when you need to be scrappy and when you need to spend to grow and understanding when to do this one thing or when to do the other thing. There's team leadership things there, but there's also then all the economics of it, the fundraising, knowing how to sell the business, knowing how to prep it for exit. There's a lot of little nuance to it. I actually like working with entrepreneurs who screwed it up at least once. So I think there's some merit to it. My company that failed was probably the best thing that ever happened to me professionally on some level in the sense of how much stronger I am today. It certainly didn't feel like that at the time. There's some real lessons learned from that. But I think that's a really cool insight for anyone out there listening. It's like, hey, especially if you're raising money from investors, like try not to be the only entrepreneur in the building. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, it's your first rodeo. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. you bring up a good point about failure. I'm going to go back to economic inequality because we always do. But there's definitely a trend in life that I've observed that the more kind of wealth and privilege you come from, the luckier you tend to get in lots of ways. There's always this conversation about like, are entrepreneurs successful because they're lucky or because they're smart? And just like everything, nature, nurture, it's probably a combination of both, but it can skew more heavily one way or another, depending on the situation. I failed, Freddie, you failed. Um, I think really smart people fail as entrepreneurs. I think it happens because Maybe you weren't lucky enough in one way or something went sideways. And I think people who don't come from privilege have to work a lot harder to be lucky, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But whatever that is, that individual, it's not because they're dumb. It's mm -hmm. not because maybe they even made a mistake. Maybe they worked twice as hard, they're twice as smart, and they didn't make any mistakes, but they mm -hmm. just didn't have the opportunity there to connect all those dots or they didn't have the lucky moment that mm -hmm. was the, you know, the connection to the connection, right? And sure. we always talk about these stories that the Bill Gates and the Mark Zuckerbergs and the whatever, but Bill Gates' mom was on the board of IBM at the time when they got the IBM contract. They started the company in his parents' building. They had millions of dollars. I mean, they had privilege. Um, you know, it just, you go in these founder stories and you see it a lot of times. So I just want to, I guess, make that point known that like, don't look at the people who've been successful over time and say, that guy's really smart. Sometimes yeah. they're lucky. And the people yeah. who fail come away, not just with resilience, like you were talking about, Freddie, but humility. And if you want to talk mm. about capabilities, you want to talk about traits, and you want to talk about people that you want to work with, people who've succeeded and failed have a lot to bring to the table. Oh, yeah. And swapping seats for a moment and about lessons in humility. So I'm about to embark on writing a book. I've already started I have two co-authors and I've now got three guys, including me, writing a book and none of us has ever written a book before. And I have having flashbacks of your first company when no one ever had been an entrepreneur before. <laughs> so hopefully this does not turn out to be unmitigated disaster for me, but I'm really excited about it. It's called Collective Capitalism and it kind of addressing an interesting new economic model that I'm really passionate about with the collective model. But you wrote a book in 2019 that I mentioned in the introduction today called Twilight of the Idols, an American Story. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that is about. And then if you could connect it, and I guess that was in 2019. So if you can kind of connect it to today and if your thinking has evolved at all about the subject. Yeah, I'm an optimist. You have to be to be an entrepreneur, but this isn't a totally optimistic story. And we have to be very real with ourselves about where we're at. Same as if we're 
starting a new business, right? In order to make the right decisions. And I guess elaborating on that background a little bit earlier, but my experiences struggling to get through school all the way to starting my first business, I actually went back and I did the calculation myself because there was a point where I ran out of money for food and I would have been done, right? It was just the end of the line. And if I had been two years younger than I am, my tuition would have been X amount higher. I calculated it for my exact school. I looked at my exact situation and I would have never been an entrepreneur. So I wouldn't have been an entrepreneur. I wouldn't have been an author. I wouldn't have been any of these things that I actually ended up becoming. So it all comes down to this increasing trend towards economic inequality. And that door is closing for more and more people talented people, people who have incredible gifts to bring to the world, people who can do so much more and impact so much more than I did. But no matter how hard they're willing to work, that door is getting closed for more and more people. And so what Twilight of the Idols was about was my just heart-wrenched realization from being involved in the political landscape and learning how much this is an issue we don't talk about. And in fact, Obama tried to talk about it And for a month, you know, he was like, this is the most important. And, you know, all the things about class warfare came up. He was immediately shut down. So even someone in the position of being a favorably elected president couldn't talk about it. And his own party said, stop talking about it. The point is, Twilight of the Idols, an American story, is a chapter by chapter breakdown of these things that we believe are true about America that are not true in the data. Whether that is, this is the land of opportunity, or this is the land of the free, or we're the best place in the world to get an education. Mm -hmm. It ties it back into where are we at today? What's really happening? Why is it happening? And that this is the single greatest issue facing our culture and our civilization. Because if we don't get this right, there's no historical civilization that has survived with the kinds of economic inequality that we're experiencing. So this is a game we're all in together. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the gentleman, but he's a multi-billionaire. The name is is escaping me, but he's here in Seattle. Nick Hanauer, I think, who you know wrote an article about like, hey, rich people, like we need to stop this because if we don't, this falls apart and we're not yeah, rich. It apart for everyone, including, yeah. including you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and it's, you know, just to look back and Freddie, you and I are, we've both been at this game a little bit of time. And to imagine the same kid that we were not being able to do it because of reasons outside of their control. And every year there's fewer of those kids who are getting through it. Mm. And black, white, male, female, fewer of those kids. Yeah, I like to consider myself kind of an entrepreneur as entrepreneur and I'm clearly very passionate about capitalism and the idea that as an entrepreneur, you can break through and create incredible opportunities for yourself. I think it was two or three days ago, I saw this report from Oxfam, I believe it was. They were saying something like in the last, maybe since 2020, there's like something like $42 trillion in new wealth that ended up being created. And it's something like 60% of it had actually gone to the top 1% of the world every billionaire, they gained about $1.7 million in wealth for the $1 equivalent of everyone in the bottom 90%. And I don't hate billionaires. I admire billionaires. I think it's great that people can build those kind of businesses. But there's a point at which it all is going to go wrong. 
I do believe that capitalism is an incredible system for driving a lot of positive change in this world, but something's gone a little awry. And I think as a society, we really need to work on that. Well, I mean, the where it goes wrong, because I'm with you, right? It's mm -hmm. incredible to celebrate people's success. Mm -hmm. But there was a chapter of the book, and I, I won't get into the specific you know, quotes or whatever, but there was a chapter of the book that was dedicated to what does the real research say about those billionaires that we're excited about as entrepreneurs that become billionaires. And it was something like two thirds of the fortune thousand list of billionaires or whatever, but two thirds of the list said, I'm a self-made entrepreneur. And then this organization, you know, it's like the committee for economic freedom or something went through and actually looked at the histories of these people. And they found the complete opposite to be true. So all these people who were saying, I'm a self-made millionaire, they started with 10 million bucks, <laughs> and, you know, or a self-made billionaire. And it's like, it is incredible what you did. I don't take away from that yeah. at all. The problem is when we have a narrative of a society that all of these people are coming from nothing and becoming billionaires, that is blatantly wrong. We miss out on the fact that there are so many more billionaires that could have been that because they didn't have money for food, because they didn't have money for an education, because they didn't have money to go to Harvard and meet the other people. And, yeah. and, and just frankly, who to like, think if you can't pay rent, you can't invest in a futuristic SaaS platform. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> and, and so the what's going wrong is, yes, we're still having billionaires. Yes, wealth is growing at an incredible rate. But if you can't bring the 10 million to the table to be one of those billionaires, if only 5% of the remaining 99% of the population can get a seat at the table, even when they've got the talent, the ability, the capabilities, the idea, the drive, then you're failing as a society. Everyone's losing out. Absolutely everyone's mm -hmm. losing out. And the reality is that number is becoming smaller and smaller every year. So the other thing you said is like, where am I at with this stuff today? Mm -hmm. I am so disheartened that we're not even talking about it as a narrative. I'm seeing the amount of clinical depression post COVID. So over the last five years has more than tripled. So more than a third of people in the United States are now clinically depressed. People are suffering. People are anxious. I'm sorry, this is not like a light podcast topic mm -hmm. here, but people are anxious. They're angry. They're frustrated. They are confused. They don't understand. They are depressed. Things are getting way worse and we are not even talking about it. And the point of the book is we're talking about all these other things. The opioid epidemic is related to economic inequality. The housing crisis related to economic inequality. The decline of education related to economic All of these things are driven by the same cause. And we're not even talking about it. So where I'm at today is, God, I wish we could like. do. Yeah. Scared. I wish there was more that we could do, but it's getting harder and harder to just even live in the United States. Yeah, one of the things that collective capitalism, this book that we're working on is trying to address is this idea that through thinking through a collective mindset, even with no startup capital or whatever, you can create, create these businesses. You just have to think with a we mindset versus a me mindset. This is the episode of great quotes. And it's certainly not attributed to my father. He was always saying, you know, kind of classic, like, you know, bring me solutions and not problems kind of mindset. And so I'm really going to try hard to try and address that collective capitalism. I will have to make sure you get an early release. You can tell me if you think yes. it's right by sure not, since I clearly need a guy who's been an author before. 
Uh, just like maybe back in the day, you needed a guy who was an entrepreneur before. I think it's a perfect place to, to kind of wrap up today's episode. I just want to make sure that if people want to learn more about you, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you or find you, whether they want to learn about you personally or learn about your business? Yeah, the best way is probably through my LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash in slash Braden. It's just my name. So I was, I was in early. So I'm easy to find <laughs> and uh, at our website. So almostinsight.com is another great place to learn more about the product, what we're doing, but happy to connect, happy to answer questions for people. Really appreciate the journey that people who are entrepreneurs who are, or who are about to be on that journey are going to go through. Awesome. And then for those of you who are tuning into our ship, if you haven't subscribed or, or liked us before, please follow us on whatever platform we are on YouTube. We are on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Easy to find us at our ship show or just go to ourshipshow.com where we've got links to every single one of our platforms. Really appreciate you supporting us. Even a like or a comment or just sharing it on your social feed really means the world to us. And hey, if you prefer the audio side of things, hear us on Spotify and podcast and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all the major podcast platforms. So thank you again. It was great to spend some time with you. I always find you to be super interesting. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And we will see you next week on O'Ship. Thank you, Freddie.